Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan here, Friday, February the 18th, 2022, episode 229, Mark, 229. Hello, Mark, how are you? I'm great this week, Brendan, and just really, really enjoying, we've got a bit of sunshine up here in Newcastle, and the garden looks good, and yeah, everything is sunny. Excellent. Well, it's, well, sunny here, actually sunny here as well and a little bit hot i don't like the really hot humid weather mark and i've spoken about that an episode or two ago didn't i so i better shut up about the weather again um but all good otherwise works good um we just spoke off here about um doing some little training seminars to our staff and how much how much we enjoy them (laughs) and uh um it's always good to see enthusiastic people and some sat there with their eyes closed but um they're just <laughs> thinking thinking very deeply i think right thinking very deeply but no they're very good so tell um, me so i've got a couple of, i've got a couple of quick questions about your work seminar do, do you have a is do you have a like a powerpoint skeleton to hang the thing on or do you just wing it you know or is it highly ordered with multimedia weeks and weeks of planning like each one of our podcasts the the second one there mark or maybe the first actually for this one i did have a previous presentation that i just threw up and we just sort of rambled on and um went the way the wind took us um so and we got through about a quarter of it if that um in the hour (laughs) but that's fine you know the whole aim of them is it's you know, it's not an exam and it's not something that we're going to, you know, um, examine our staff on. It's really just having a chat about things that um, they, they're they interested in and what they um, they need some um, training on, on bits and pieces that they want to chat to the clients about and also for their own for their own education. So we, we wandered all over the place. We spoke a bit about um, common reptile diseases or we started to and just a reptile consult um we did this week so yeah good fun and i think everybody enjoyed it and i headed off down the street and bought a few different pastries and bits and pieces so everybody was fueled up um and away we went until a sick chicken came in mark um, near the end of it as they do so um john headed off to see that one and um everybody headed off in all directions after that and i headed home <laughs> it's a really fascinating um because you really one of the things i found about workplace uh um, education is you have to set a timeline to it um it's essential you've got to do it and you've got to have the downtime and you've got to schedule the time but you also have to schedule the end of it because otherwise they get so interesting and and staff have such a different perspective and can ask questions that go in different directions that you can well, I'd I, I loathe to say it, but I could waffle on for hours and hours and hours. Yes, of course you do. Yes, <laughs> myself also. Um, so there we go. Yes, staff training, um, always good to do. And we'll have to get on to a few staff training 
sort of general topics in our podcast at some stage, Mark. Um, before we jump into a couple of news stories, um, we're, we're lucky that we have a we need a shout out. And you might hear my dog in the background. She's she's having a dream, old Patch here. So keep trying to wake her up, but she keeps going back to the same dream of chasing chasing a rabbit i think um being a greyhound and and not being able to catch it so yeah and we've got lots of we've got lots of rabbits around lately mark have you around your place we've got no we haven't we've had a bit of a plague a plague Mm, the um i think the the khaleesi virus has done a bit of a number on the rabbits in the hunter valley and we don't haven't seen a whole lot of them the the, our uh, feral bunnies but um obviously Khaleesi in Victoria is not um, is not uh, it's becoming more moderate and not killing them. Yes, we've got lots of them. Um, so um, back to a new patron, Mark. We have a new patron. Um, if you want to help us by supporting us by giving us a couple of dollars or more each every month, go to vetgurus.com and click on the link, become a patron. And we have a new rabbit patron, Mark, which is our two dollar a month patron and everything helps and um we really love and appreciate our patrons and uh, our new patron is sang and hello to sang and thank you very much i, I think i've sent sang a little personal thank you via email and um, we love our patrons and it helps pay for our production costs so thank you very much and i think you said you had something to say about saying you you have a um you know sang Oh yes, Sang's. Um, I did a little bit of help with Sang as she sat her memberships. So um, uh, very impressed with, and it's it. it she's sort of, uh, um, you know, the, this young cohort coming through, uh, recent graduates who've uh, worked for a little bit, sat their membership. Um, geez, it's a um, uh, outstanding group of um, of young people. Um, uh, um, I'm just very impressed with uh, the way that. Um, I don't know, taking the profession forward. Um, it's just an excellent thing to be involved in. And, um, yeah, I, I saw an article the other day about um, uh, if you don't have a mentor as a, as a person of our vintage, if you don't have a, a mentor in your life who's, um, who's under 30, um, then you're going to be disconnected from the sort of, you know, state of the art of the world. And so having those um, young and vital people in our lives, it's a good thing to do. And a shout out to Sang for supporting us. Excellent. Good to have you aboard. I'm going to jump into my first and only news story, Mark, and you'll be glad to know the two news stories this week are about our little Avian friends, although my article is not a... It's a little bit depressing one, but I think it's one that you knew about and, and a lot of wildlife veterinarians already know about, and that's the, the threat of um, rat po- anticoagulant rat poisons to to our wildlife mark. And it's a bit of a story about the the powerful owl, owls here in Melbourne and they at Deakin University they've examined 18 powerful owls which had died over a year or two and they determined that 14 of the 18 had tested positive to anticoagulant rodenticide. So these were birds that were picked up, I think, by members of the public and uh, they weren't quite sure what was happening. And typically in an average year, I think it was only one or two birds were were brought in. And, gee, they are, I must admit, they are magnificent 
birds, aren't they? These um, powerful owls, and I've um, lucky enough to see a few um, locally in the wild, but also when I was working as a zoo veterinarian there. Yeah, um, so it's a bit of a bit of a story talking about the the, the um, and I'd I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, Mark. Um, um, bird Life Australia, for instance, is trying to um, lobby for or campaign against anticoagulant rodenticides at um, Bunnings, which is our hardware warehouse here in in, um, in Australia, to try and get them to stop stocking these um, anticoagulant rodenticides. Um, my cynic, or, or, or I think the, um, I think it's unlikely that we'll ever end up stopping that happening. Um, but it's, um, yeah, how can we try and stop these birds dying, Mark, from these anticoagulant rodenticides? Well, I think it's really interesting, Brendan, because um, I don't, th- these are likely to be um, uh, multiple relay intoxications. It's very yep. likely that um, the owls, that uh, um, rodents are not part of the powerful owls' normal um, normal dietary intake. They they feed on um, possums, particularly possums, you know, yes. ring-tailed yep. possums. They have a pretty pretty much a go at uh, uh, flying foxes, our fruit bats here in Australia. They uh, are also known to take uh, roosting birds, cockatoos, and and lorikeets, but they're really um, specialist uh, possum eaters. So um, so it's. The assumption is that um, the possums are maybe having a bit of a go at um, maybe some of the rat baits, or that somehow the the uh, Brodie facum or whichever of the uh, anticoagulants is working its way up the food chain is then reaching the owls. And interestingly enough, I think that um, we've had a little bit of a rush. Owl uh, bird observers club here in the Hunter have had a spike in the number of uh, uh, powerful owls that have been hit by cars, um, but I think it's very likely that those birds are compromised uh, birds, yes. and maybe the uh, anticoagulant um, rodenticides are putting those birds in a situation where then they get traumatised, and um, so it's a bit of a um, a serious problem. And um, and I like you, I'm a bit cynical. I think the it's very unlikely that um, that. Uh, there may be some token efforts to decrease the sale of the most dangerous uh, rodenticides, but uh, but by and large, I think people are going to continue to want those poisons, and um, and uh, places are going to keep selling them, and and the poor powerful owls are going to have to just cope or not. I'd be I'd be interested in any of our listeners, Mark, if they've got any experience with this, because in that article they do mention that the anticoagulant poisons have have been restricted from general sale in the US, Canada and the European Union, uh, and I think they cannot be bought in supermarkets and hardware shops um, like they can freely in Australia. So, you know, you can wander down to your supermarket and buy a bottle of milk and um, some rat, rat poison and, and head home and um, at least they've sort of um, taken it away from that distribution chain there. But, yeah, um, I don't... And uh, interestingly yeah. enough, Brendan, powerful owls are only one in a stream that are the whole, all our owls, barn owls, um, uh, particularly the grass owls. Um, there's a, a whole series of endangered owls who... who uh, who are bleeding out 
right before our eyes, just before the species become extinct. Um, so, so yeah, maybe we're being overly cynical. Maybe we can join those other countries in limiting the distribution of these things and, and saving these animals. And interestingly, powerful owls were thought to be, because they preyed on species that were unlikely to convey the uh, poisons, they were thought to be a little bit removed from this problem. So that study in Victoria has shocked a lot of people in the bird world uh, to realise that it's not just the absolute specialist rodent hunters that are affected by these poisons. Yes. And the only final note which I found interesting is that they were considering that perhaps it was just during COVID and lockdown that people were spending more time just wandering around their neighbourhood and therefore finding owls that maybe weren't... um, you know, the numbers were, were, were there previously, but um, when they tested them, they certainly were. Um, when they ran that to- toxicology test, they did find that they did have the anticoagulants in them. So there you go, Mark. It's not a, not a happy story, that one, and I don't know what the ending will be. Well, we know what the ending is for some of those owls, <laughs> but um, what have you got for us? you got something... Um, Uplifting. Also avian, something. Well, I don't, same as you, I don't know. I hope it's uh, an uplifting avian story. It's the story of of a flamingo, uh, an American or Caribbean flamingo, a male bird, um, uh, Conchi, who uh, ended up um, in um, an unusual part of Florida. These birds traditionally um, in the 1800s would migrate to Florida, but they have only uh, very rarely been seen in that part of the world. But Conch uh, shot over and um, and set up shop, uh, I think, between... Let me just see. Uh, there's been previously flamingos that turned up in Florida Bay, uh, banded as chicks in Mexico and popping up to Florida. Um, but, um, but Conchie got... Uh, uh, got sick. Was it? Was he in between? I think he'd landed in a water course. In a, a you know how they feed in those uh, um, shallow lakes. He landed in a, a, a wetlands near um, an airport. Near the so na- wanted, naval air station. Yes. Yeah, they wanted to get rid of him because they were worried a decent sized bird like that hitting one of their FA eighteen Hornets might cause you know. A fair bit of damage. So, uh, but when they caught him up and they did tests, he uh, was demonstrating significant um, uh, disease. Uh, they were worried that he'd ingested poison and had liver disease uh, as a result of feeding on water that had drained from restaurants. So, remind me never to eat in the restaurants <laughs> in, in Florida. Anyway, um, he did recover from that. But then there was a big controversy about releasing him. Should they let him go? Um, and um, or should they fly him down to Mexico and make him someone else's problem? And eventually the decision was made to release him. But um, surprisingly enough, he didn't migrate away. He just spent the, um, the next couple of years <laughs> hanging around, apparently not making too much more problem. Um, but, but as a consequence, those observations, uh, um, the number of uh, sightings of flamingos in um, Florida has increased steadily and um, there's now a thought amongst wildlife agencies that the wetlands of southern Florida as uh, climate change occurs they may provide a, a, a new habitat for these species to expand their range further north 
um, and uh, survive some aspects of climate change. So it's interesting to me as someone who works on um, many unusual uh, low numbers of unusual birds. Uh, we've had um, one of the interesting cases we had was a large water bird, the the black neck stork or jabiru. And you do wonder is it is it appropriate to put all that effort into the bird? Uh, but cases like conchies makes it uh, very clear that it's a good thing to do, and uh, and maybe the future holds uh, a, a bright pink color for some of the waterways in Florida, Brendan. I think it is a good news story there, Mark. About um, and there's a couple, of, a very um, nice picture there of Conchi being released with the satellite transmitter, um, and um, yeah, must be on a good wicket there. Yeah, I was, I was, um, <laughs> yes, I was interested about that comment about the polluted water near the restaurant. <laughs> yes, um, very interesting. Um, Yes, I think we'll move on. Um, there's a couple more things I was going to say about that, but I think we better get moving into our main punchy episode this week, which is a bit of an overview, um, which we haven't done a wildlife um, subject for a while. So we thought we'd talk our listeners through, Mark, um, basically triage for wildlife that comes into the clinic, a few tips and tricks and important factors about um, what to do and what not to do when you're presented with wildlife in your veterinary clinic. And you don't have to be in an exotics clinic in order to have wildlife presented to you, and you will have wildlife presented to you regardless of what clinic you are in the world, I think, whether you're urban or not, Mark, um, and you need to have a we well, need to have a practice protocol about how you deal with that process there. And I think legally in most regions of the world, you have a moral, if not a, a legal um, requirement to treat the wildlife or at least provide them first aid. So um, although having said that, Mark, and, I'm, and we've got to be careful about what we say here, um, I certainly know <laughs> clinics that... Um, uh, reluctant, let's just call it that, to treat wildlife that's presented to them or and even to the stage of not even providing basic first aid or or euthanizing animals that are in, in great distress there. And it's, it's sad to see um, that that occurs, although it's less the numbers that um, we see locally that... Um, that um, are going down that track, Mark. So I think my first comment would be um, when you are presented with wildlife, whether you're the veterinary um, technician or veterinary nurse or receptionist or, or the veterinarian who has handed the animal, the most important thing to do initially before you even look at the animal is get that history, Mark, and, and we have a basic wildlife admission form because the whole aim of dealing with wildlife is getting it back out there ideally um, although unfortunately a large percentage of these ones sort of presented to you um, get back out there in a body bag but we want to be able to get it back out to where it came from and we need a bit of a history about you know it might be a member of the public who've kept that that bird that reptile that that mammal um, for more than just you know several minutes if it was found on the side of the road they may have taken it home and tried to raise it for several weeks or even longer and um, you need that history because um, they might have been thinking they're doing the correct thing, but they um, 
they weren't, and we need to know what's happening and what it's been fed, etc. Um, so get the details, Mark. Get the details of the member of the public who've handed it to you, the phone number, the address, where they found the animal, whereabouts it was found on or off their property, what they've been doing with it, what any treatments or, or, or feed they've given the animal. Absolutely critical, Brendan, the, particularly the piece of information that um, mitigates against a successful outcome most frequently is the, is the provenance, the site from which the animal came. And there are some wild animals that you could conceivably relocate to um, a recent, you know, uninhabited um, uh, um, habitat, uh, but by and large, um, animals that uh, are... Uh, rehabilitated need to be released uh, in areas that they're familiar with and that they can once again insert themselves into the social structure. The classic one for us are kookaburras, Brendan. Um, they are kookaburras, are beautiful kingfishers, and uh, but they are absolutely vicious to uh, other kookaburras that enter their territory. Um, and um, to take a, a a bird that you've committed a huge amount of resources to heal and recover and let it go and within seconds have it smashed by the mob in the territory that you've let go. It's cruel to the bird um, and sad for the effort that everyone's put in. Um, and so birds that don't, those birds that don't have the provenance information, it, it makes a very important decision for us straight away. So um, anytime they're admitted, who brought them in, where they came from, and what's happened to them is critical. And it's important to to talk to that member of the public and explain that whole process to them because some people get their guard up and they think, why, why do you want my phone number? You know, I'm not, not a client of yours. Why do I need to give you some information? And once you explain um, the whole purpose behind the questions in the in the little one page. We have a little one page sort of um, admission form. Then um, it's it's rare that they you know um, won't provide that information that that is critical for the for the survival of that that animal. Mark, what's our next step with them? What's your next thought um, with that animal? You've 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 had this wildlife um, admitted to the clinic. Um, they filled in the form. What do we do next? You have to triage them, Brendan, and you have to do that fairly. Uh, urgently. Um, you have to do it urgently for a couple of reasons. Um, the first one is because you have to make a relatively er early decision about um, what's going to happen to that animal. And, and as you've already alluded to, a significant number of the wild animals that come into our care need a, uh, the best, the best humane outcome for them is a prompt and painless humane euthanasia. Um, and so uh, assessing them, assessing their likelihood of, uh, of recovery, the nature of their uh, injuries or uh, disability, um, making and that triage, it has to be done fairly, you know, with the concept of what veterinary things can be done. And additionally, what... Um, you know, are there longer-term care requirements? Do you have contact with a, a carer who has experience with that species? Um, uh, so these are all important considerations during the triage phase, um, and they, it's a priority to get into that very, very quickly. Yep, absolutely. And... <laughs> 
you sort of have to be ruthless, don't you? You have to be a little bit ruthless um, with your assessment of them because we need to make a decision fairly early on with these ones and remembering also the laws for the region you might be in as far as um, treating wildlife and and say um, if it was a pet, it might be an animal that you could remove a limb, for instance, but with wildlife, um, the law may be that you cannot do that and it's if it's not fit to be released or it has... Um, a, a, um, a missing limb um, or an eye, for instance, it may not be able to be released. Um, so the bad news is you end up spending a lot of time, um, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but you do end up euthanizing a lot of these animals. And, and um, it, it's a bit of a struggle, especially for new graduates um, with dealing with wildlife, and, and it can get a little bit depressing um, making those hard decisions. But um it's. Um, I think it's a bit of experience, isn't it, Mark, with, with these cases that you realise that, hey, that one, this particular possum that's been attacked by a cat, for instance, and it's got obvious puncture wounds, um, you know that the survivability for that individual based on previous possums that you've seen is 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 pretty damn low and you may be making that decision to euthanize it very early on so we do use a lot of the euthanasia solutions in 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 the wildlife there but it, it's it's doing the right thing by the animal too and not having that animal um, I, I, that we know has a high I agree chance of in not surviving and, and just being kept alive for the next day or two and uh, we end up doing the same thing down the track so you need to be tough is what i'm trying to get get um, get out there, Mark, with these. Um, would you agree with that or not? I, I entirely 1,000% uh, uh, agree that um, the best welfare outcome for a significant number of our patients is to uh, have an early and prompt and painless humane euthanasia. Um, I think that um, you highlighted it before, but I think... Uh, the other, I'd like to flip it on its head a little bit, Brendan, because I think you're right. Um, I talk to lots of people, lots of veterinarians who treat this aspect of caring for wildlife as a as a huge negative, and it wears them out. It wears young veterinarians out that it's a constant train of um, of doing your physical exam, of doing the uh, having a short anaesthetic to assess an animal, um, decrease the stress on it. Um, and then euthanizing them. Um, but this is uh, uh, a kindness to these animals to put them through um, uh, complex surgical procedures or uh, human interventions is hugely stressful and you want to have a high degree of confidence that they're going to return to the wild and be uh, uh, significant contributors to wild populations to ask them to go through that. And often it doesn't appear like the animals are stressed going through that procedure um, but they are hugely stressed to just come into proximity with humans the odors and, and movements and smells of humans are a huge issue for these animals and if you can't save them then uh, humanely euthanizing them promptly is a kindness well we are in agreement as usual there mark um, but let's not get too down on things um, because a fair number of these we can get back out there because they may be simple issues or, or fair i mean a classic one we see especially lately being our summer period mark is heat stress um, with the possums um, for instance yeah and providing them with some rehydration and, and and basic care it's amazing how quickly some of them bounce back and then they can be back out there so 
Um, you mentioned the important bo- point about seeing them, looking at them, having them assessed very early on after they've been admitted to the clinic because uh, unfortunately the, the, the thing we don't want to see happen, which still happens in some clinics, is it's wildlife, it's admitted, it's put out the back somewhere, you know, in the back room. It may even be put next to a, a dog or a cat that's barking or meowing and it's left there Um the time comes to close the clinic at 5, 7 p.m. or whatever at night and the the, the duty nurse um, says, oh, what's in this box? And they open up the box to find the dead um, animal that was admitted at, you know, 8 a.m. that morning. And, and that's pretty sad. You know, that animal um, may have struggled and, and thrashed around and been in distress for, for several hours um, before it finally succumbed. And yeah, assessing them very early on, real, remembering that, you know, if, if wildlife's picked up by a member of the public, chances are it's pretty unwell. So we need to get that assessed very quickly and make those decisions and go through that decision tree about whether or not we need to euthanise it and if we do, do that um, immediately or as soon as practical. And if not, Mark, what do we start to do? We provide that, gee, what's what's happening in the background at your house? Um, I could hear some um, cars or something going up and up and down outside. Um, are you sat on in a cafe outside your um Outside your little suburb, outside your house there. No, no, the, 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 we've just got the windows open and there's a bit of a bit of traffic going. There must be a diversion. Sometimes we have that around here. Um, and hopefully none of those diverted cars will glance against a bird that has to go to the, the hospital. But there, um, we definitely see a cohort of birds that bump into windows or um, are caught in the turbulence around those racing vehicles that and are disoriented. And like you said, just a short period of time of care um, and those uh, um, you know, the supportive care of uh, a warm, dark place, fluids, um, and a lot of those animals are bounced back in in only several hours to the point where they can uh, be released. And I think another point we need to make, Mark, is about that initial initial housing um, during that period, and it, and it's keeping it simple um, with how we look after that animal, and and that's and we don't have to have, have even if you're a clinic that doesn't have specific wildlife enclosures it's just having a little box um, warm and dark and quiet um, is what we need to provide for them so we need an enclosure that's got a little bit of warmth there Um, it's closed off so um, the animal's not stressed and it's kept nice and dark um, and we put it in a quiet region of the clinic so and it could be a cat carry cage that you put it in and you cover that with a towel or something can be something quite simple and then one of those little heat Discs, etc. Sure, if you've got if you've got the the fancy little um, um, hospital oh, intensive hum- care cages um, or humidity humidity crib, um, we've I forget the brand of the um, bird enclosure we have um, that works quite well and it has a, a little oxygen port, etc. Um, using those can also be um, useful as well, but. But just to house it in something um, quite basic there, provide it um, some analgesia, um, assess its hydration status, give it some fluids if you can, um, and then um, leave it alone. You know, don't try and do everything at once with them. Um, like any 
um, work up on any species don't don't think oh look at it, it maybe it does have a fractured wing this bird um, let's take an x-ray and give it some fluids and give it some pain relief and suck some blood out of it at the same time because you'll be doing the post-mortem um, in a few minutes as well so do one thing at a time keep the animal alive give it a, give it a little bit of fluid therapy or, or a bit of analgesia put it back in its warm dark quiet environment um, let it settle get it out again and, and assess the next little bit for it what are some of the common presentations that you see brendan do you, do you like we definitely see um a lot of birds that are um struck and have coracoid or uh, wing fractures um and they're um they fit into that difficult uh range they are fractures they're going to take a few weeks to heal but um, they often will heal and it depends on you know an open fracture of a wing would be something that we would um we would almost always be thinking about euthanizing um, and yet some of the the closed fractures um uh, we might keep a bird rested for a couple of weeks and uh and and particularly some of the tougher species that are able to cope with that um, restraint for a couple of weeks um yeah so what are some of the common presentations you see well, similar to you, the the the, the fractures, the tra the traumas, um, we do see a few with just some of those species specific problems, like the lorikeet syndrome, um, um, which you can have a little chat about. You're more up to date with the the, the theories on what's happening with those lorikeets that are brought in that that basically are, are little runners, aren't they? That they, they, they don't seem to be able to fly, and they just um, um, some of them are even almost laterally recumbent there, and they just almost um, paresis or paralysed. Um, and some of them recover just with supportive care, miraculously over over a day or three or four. Um, others don't, um, and end up having to be euthanized. Um, so that's that's that that group. But yeah, certainly trauma um, with the birds is um, well with any of the species. I think um, you know the other common one we see is the reptiles, and the classic one there is uh, is the is the lizards or the turtles, etc. That it. Trying to cross the road and don't quite make it. Um, I think we're chatting about it in our little seminar today. You know, important point with the turtles is um, that turtle may be a, 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 a um, have a belly full of eggs, Mark, and and the reason why it was crossing the road, depending on the season, is that it was trying to find a place to to um, dig its little nest and, and bury those eggs. So always radiograph a, a, a turtle that's um, even if it has no in, in apparent um, no apparent injuries there, Mark. It's amazing how many of them end up being females that are full of eggs. And the mammals, well, um, we see that we see the heat stress ones, especially um, with them. We spoke about that with the possums there, um, and and the other species. Um, we, we see some heat stress in, in in Melbourne, believe it or not, Mark. Um, um, we can get those 40 degree plus days sometimes, but um, um, the traumas, the, the dog and cat attacks, the other obvious ones there. Um, and they're a bit of a tricky one um, for the for the young veterinarians and, and the nurses without that much experience I mentioned earlier on in this podcast that um, those furred small mammals, those marsupials, etc., um, they may not have any really obvious puncture wounds there. Um, and or just a slight wet 
fur on them where they've been grabbed and brought in as a prize um, to the owner um, and dropped at the doorstep or, or brought inside the house and yet they have got puncture wounds there and they they die fairly rapidly um, soon after and you when you do a few post-mortems on those it's amazing the damage that's done internally there with my, my, them mark and i can see you nodding in our little video presentation here um when and and previously when i was working as a zoo vet i used to um at one stage i'd I had a routine of clipping all of them up, so surgically clipping um, most of the animal quickly um, after after I'd euthanize them, and and um, you could really appreciate the the puncture wounds and and, and the obvious soft tissue trauma um, that was going on there and the hemorrhages there and then when you open up the the, the body cavity there yeah um, pretty horrific some of the injuries there so you may not see any obvious external injuries with those cat attacks especially um, and yet they're pretty they have fatal injuries what about you mark what did, do you see with the so mammals and the and the reptiles very it's a very similar um, uh, array of presentations and and just like you i i um, I'm constantly caught in that situation where people bring in a, um, a small possum or a, um, a, um, some other animal that's been caught by the cat or dog um, and they look okay when they come in, but they, the, they more often than not have horrendous wounds um, that are concealed by their mobile skin and, and thick fur um, and uh, whether it's bruising or inoculation with um, with bacteria they, they're serious cases and you really want to not put them through anything you, you don't need to unless you're absolutely confident they're going to pull through. And I think a really important point with that is educating the members of the public about this too because um, you get some clients who come in, drop those animals off, and then all they think is, oh, gee, Brendan's clinic, they just euthanize everything. I dropped off a possum that there was nothing wrong with it, and, and now it's um, been euthanized and they obviously don't want to spend any time trying to rehabilitate and release um, wildlife. So... Um, with those cases, Mark, it, it's probably an idea to think about um, even taking pictures of, of, of some of those individuals and making sure that all of those clients or, or, or not necessarily clients, a member of the public who's dropped off that wildlife, and that's why you have their phone number on that form, that they're all given a call back um, about the outcome of that individual, whether it's that day or next day or next week when it's released. Um, and then um, you can explain or the nurse can explain um, what happened and how horrific the injuries were and, and chat to them a little bit about the fact that perhaps they should be keeping their cat inside. Um, <laughs> Agree. It's it's easily. Um, we're talking about the way these cases can affect veterinarians, and the interaction with the public is both a huge opportunity to educate, but also it's one of the uh, situations where it is very easy to even experienced veterinarians can get into conflict with um, with uh, zealous clients, uh, zealous carers, zealous uh, enthusiastic members of the public who are. Uh, maybe don't completely understand all the things that uh, go into getting an animal um, back into the wild and, and they can get very upset that um, that maybe the decision that we see as correct is um, is one that that uh, that they don't agree with and certainly we've been in situations where people do a little bit of a, a um, you know almost a veterinary shop they 
call up two or three places with this animal that has a problem yes. um, and, yep. and yep. try and avoid getting it euthanized. Um, so I think that uh, these, these are definitely the type of cases that communication is paramount. And that, that's where the skills with educating and training your, your staff as well, Mark, in that um, you telling that member of the public just to get that animal in um, and don't enter into that conversation about what disease or what process is going on with them. Just say, look, it, you found an injured animal, get it to your nearest local veterinarian um, in preference um, to, to travelling long distances to drop it off somewhere else and have it assessed by a professional exactly what i would say brendan well i think with that mark we better get moving um i think you're out to mow the lawn and we will talk to you all next week and don't forget to visit us at vetgurus.com and we'll talk to you all next week for listening to the vet podcast by the vet gurus don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe view show notes listen to previous episodes and more you can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi thanks again and see you next time